0: comes uh, generally in April as far as God's calendar is concerned and uh, man's calendar in January. But there have been many, many significant events occur in January in this era of the church. So does God use both first months and, and how? Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing to contemplate seeing what has happened in the past. Just a couple words uh, You may be watching, but the stock market dropped another 416 yesterday. And previous to that, a couple of 500-day drops. And now they're saying that it is the fastest and the greatest drop since the Great Depression. Not in 2008 or 1989, but since the 30s. And that it's over 10%, which puts it in bear market. So, kind of interesting to watch what's going on there. Is this the beginning of the, the crash? As I said last week, uh, it was a question last week, and I guess it's still a question this week. But uh, it's continued to slide, and it may be pretending some very important things to happen. Not only that, our government's on partial shutdown. And whether they'll get it worked out this time or, or go ahead and shut the government down for a while... A lot of things going on, so it's best we keep, uh, what's that? It's possible that uh, Mr. because of martial law. Yeah, he may do. Yeah, there's mixed thoughts about that. Now that the Democrats have the House, they may want to do it, and uh, he may do it. I think martial law is coming because it's clear in the scriptures that we're going to have civil war. Uh, So something has to be done to precipitate that, and uh, who knows what the trigger will be, but the feds just raised the interest rates in the face of trouble, and that sometimes signals that they're about to collapse the system again, yet again. But this time, I firmly believe it's not going to recover, that it's it's going on down if this, if this is the beginning of that. It may not be, but certainly it uh, behooves us to keep a close eye on everything that's going on. Uh, and I read to you last week from Hosea and uh, as well as from Isaiah that it appears that we will lose maybe our king or president and maybe vice president based on Isaiah 7. And there's another one you can throw in there in... Uh, just went through my mind. Oh, Micah 4, where it says your king is dead, and that I think applied first of all and most importantly to the church when Herbert Armstrong died, but uh, it could also have a, another fulfillment in the uh, leaders of our country. So Jeremiah very clearly says there will be violence in the land, ruler against ruler. So it's it's coming is this it, is always the question. So we shall see. Anyway, (coughs) we won't go deeply into that, but just to kind of keep an eye on things and to remind you, I think we're all pretty well aware in any case. I gave you a copy of the calendar for 2019. Uh, Somebody asked me, why do I have two days circled at the... uh, at the uh, beginning of the month of each month well the Sun the the uh, new moon occurs and I write down the evening that the first month begins like there in February for instance, it says fourth and then it's circled fourth and fifth. We generally have a Bible study unless it's on a Friday night or Saturday uh, at the beginning. Of the month, so that would be what the fourth is marked for. Is uh, that evening marks the beginning, and that's when the Bible study would be. And then the next day, the fifth is the actual first day of the month. So I just mark them both, I guess, because it makes it uh, clearer for me. But uh, maybe it makes it muddled for you. So that's that's why I do that anyway. There's a couple places scratched out where I made an error and I didn't have. I got a new printer, but I don't have it hooked up yet. I'm not sure I'm smart enough <clears throat> and uh, so I scratched them out and changed one there on the new moon at the end of October, and I had the fast of the fifth month off a day, so the the tenth is scratched out. It should be the eleventh so those are the the two changes, and that's why those are scratched out. Okay, let's get back to first Corinthians. Paul is, again, writing this book to a church that had serious problems, and uh, they needed to be handled. He just talked about the the man who was in an incestuous relationship in chapter 5, and now in chapter 6, they apparently had a, a lot of arguing and fighting among themselves. I don't know whether it was church members doing business with each other or what it was, but traditionally... In our experience in worldwide, uh, quite frequently when members got together to do business with each other or become partners or uh, whatever, even sales among themselves or various things, there tended to arise lots of difficulties. Of course, that's true in business and life anywhere, but it also happened within the church. And what it happened in the church then it needed to be handled a certain way and they weren't doing it the way God or Paul would have it done so Paul addresses that here in chapter 6 <coughs> and uh, and gets on them pretty heavily about what was happening he says dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints So instead of being able to settle things within the church, some were going to the outside world and uh, filing lawsuits and so on in the courts of the world rather than settling it within the church. Interesting topic to be addressing right at the moment when we have had lawsuits uh, by people who consider themselves, I guess, still members of God's church. Uh, I think that's highly questionable considering some of what's going on, but maybe he still considers them part of the church on some level and will put them in the tribulation and hope they repent. So, who am I to say that they aren't church members? I know they justify suing me and suing the church because they say they disfellowshipped me and therefore I'm not part of the church anymore. Uh, Now, is that the way Paul looked at that in chapter 5? No, he said, put that man with the incest out, turn him over to the devil for the time being, hoping he repented. And then when he did repent, in 2 Corinthians, we'll get to, Paul said, forgive him and accept him back. So he did not consider him completely out or gone. He considered him being held away from God and away from God's people and in the clutches of the devil until he changed his attitude and repented and changed his conduct. And when that was changed, he was welcomed back. So could you consider him completely out of the church? I don't think so. He was suspended from it while he got things straight. Now... These people around here think I was doing all kinds of things I wasn't doing. And they decided to disfellowship me. So they don't consider me part of the church, so 1 Corinthians 6 wouldn't mean a thing to them. Now, can I take the same view to them that they have to me? That's a question. Let's read on. I think you could say here, how dare any of you, or how do you dare to do this? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? We will. We will be with Christ, ruling the entire world, and making judgments in every kind of case there is, whatever it might be. That'll be our job. So he's leading up to something here. (laughs) We're the ones that are going to judge the world. Why are we going to the judges of the world to settle matters between ourselves or among ourselves? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you then unworthy to judge the smallest matters? I mean, if you're going to be ruling the whole world with Christ, you can't handle these little local things. Why did he say to them, I can't give you meat, I have to give you milk? Because you can't handle it. But here he's he's trying to straighten them out on something that they were doing, obviously, uh, and shouldn't have been doing. Know you not that we shall judge angels? Not just people who are living on the earth, but angels as well. Now, in the past... Uh, People have looked at that particular phrase, and I perhaps it is a little bit difficult to understand exactly what Paul means by that, but they tried to go into the Greek and look it up and prove that that means that we'll manage angels, that we'll, since they'll be our servants, since we'll be God, and they'll still be angels, that we will manage them. But if you look the Greek word up there, that's not what it says. Uh It's in the sense of judging, uh, of even condemning, is what the word means. And how would that be? I don't know. Unless there's some judgment ahead for fallen angels that God wants us in on at that point, having been under their influence all this time. Or does it mean that, well, there aren't disputes among the angels except those So I don't know exactly what Paul means. Maybe he had a little insight that we don't have and that which is not explained. But let's not miss the point in getting involved in worrying about Greek words. The point is, we'll be judging the world and we'll also be judging angels in whatever way that's meant. The point being, if that's what we're going to be doing... Why can't we learn to settle things among ourselves? That's the whole point. If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church, I speak to your shame. Who is least esteemed by the church? We esteemed the church pretty highly when it was making some judgments in our lives even on things like divorce and remarriage, which was approached wrongly for some decades, and various things of that nature, we looked to the church to give us judgments and understanding of Scripture and how to conduct our lives. And we looked down upon the judges of this world, and so does God. He says that we are sick from head to foot, And the judges are sick. Uh, That's talking about modern-day America, especially today. So they are the least esteemed in the church to make judgments among church brethren. And even the lawyer we've had to retain to try to help us through this mess that's been laid on us has said that you better be careful, because if a judge gets hold of this, he's liable to put a a receiver in here, and he'll take what you got. That's what receivers do. That's, uh, they're lawyers, or they're somebody that's uh, a judge appoints. And who does a judge appoint? People that he knows and likes. Uh, could be his brother-in-law. Who knows? But we can't trust the judges of this world. And he says... You ought to be far above that. How can you go to men in the world who don't understand God or anything about God and get them to make judgments between people who understand and know God? Does sound kind of stupid, doesn't it, when you think about it that way. Why should we go to the world to make judgments on God's people? I speak to your shame. He didn't. He didn't say, "I'm proud of you for this." Notice, uh, this is shameful. Is is it so that there's not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. Can't you find anybody in the church who can make better judgments than some carnal, selfish, money-grubbing judge in the world? Huh? <laughs> But brother goes to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Brothers in the church can't settle their problems, can't find anybody in the church that they would allow to settle it, so they go to unbelievers. Let's put that in a larger context. Here we are, human beings on the earth. Some of us go to the eternal God, the Creator, for guidance and direction in our lives, do we not? Other people on this earth go directly to Satan and ask for guidance and direction in their life. We've got some bigwig politicians in Washington, D.C. who are witches and worship Satan openly. And in public, and on TV, they give the signs of paganism and Luciferian worship. One of the little Pop-Tarts I read the other day had said, if you don't worship Lucifer, you can't get ahead in this world. Miley Cyrus, I think it was. You can't get ahead in this world unless you worship Lucifer. So, where do these judges go that are making judgments in our country. The ones at the top are go to Lucifer. They don't go to God. Now, there are a few who might claim to go to the true God, but they don't they worship they know not what, so they're worshiping Lucifer too, whether they admit it or not, since they're not obeying God. So what do you want to do? You want to go to Satan for judgment, or do you want to go to God for judgment? God's people represent God. The rest of the world represents Satan. Who do you want making a judgment in your life? I think David made that pretty clear. Not even the people of Israel. I'll I'll leave it in your hands, Father. That's where he wanted his judgment to come from. Now, that should be pretty well established by now. And this is Scripture. It's breathed by God. It is ordained of God. It is canonized by God. And therefore is part of his holy word. It's not just Paul's opinion, uh, it's what God inspired him to write. So we're not to be going to the world uh, for their judgments in our lives. Let's go on then. Verse seven: "Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you. So what they were doing was a fault. It was wrong. It was a mistake shouldn't have been being done. Because you go to law one with another. Then he asks the question, if you're Christians, if you're following God, if you're following Christ's instructions, what should you do? Why do you not rather take wrong? Instead of going to the judges of this world, Let someone wrong you. Let them do you wrong instead of fighting them. Is that what that says? Why do you not rather take wrong? Just take it. Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? He says, instead of going to the courts of the world, it's better to be defrauded and to allow them to defraud you. Is there any other take on that? Is that clear or is that written in Chinese? Well, it seems to me like it's fairly simply written and direct. Now, Paul did write some things hard to be understood, but I don't think this is one of them. This is pretty clear. No, you do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. So whether they, someone's defrauding you or you're defrauding them, the solution isn't to go to the world. The solution is to go to God. Now, we can read this today, and we can go back, and I could tie it together with some things Christ said about going the extra mile and allowing yourself to be misused and abused and taking it patiently. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 has some of that. We can go back to that. And Paul is presenting the same thing that Christ said here, isn't he? Now, there's something else that could come to play here. Sometimes God does things one way, sometimes God does things another way. And we have to be wise in how we apply each scripture to a certain situation. Uh, The Proverbs is a very good one, very plain there. It says, answer a fool according to his folly. And then it says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Now, how do you do both? Isn't that a direct contradiction? One says, do it this way, and the other one says, no, do it that way. So the obvious answer to that is you have to determine what kind of fool you're dealing with. Some fools you answer, some fools you don't answer. So it requires us to come to have the wisdom and understanding and knowledge of God to be able to perceive what kind of fool we're dealing with and answer accordingly. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Now, when Christ died... Isaiah 53 makes it very, very clear that he answered not a word. He took what was being laid on him, the stripes, the abuse, crown of thorns, watching his clothes being optioned off, and death, and pure ignominy on the stake. Didn't say a word. He allowed himself to be defrauded. Now... There's two ways of looking at that. He didn't deserve what was happening. And yet, on the other hand, he did. How did he deserve what they did to him? Because on his back at that moment were your sins and mine. And therefore, he was filthy. Not from his sin, but from ours. And therefore, because of our sins, he deserved what happened. I'm not laying any blame on him in saying that. The blame is ours, because we needed saved from our sins. Now, from a personal perspective, and the way we've always looked at that, I think is correct, that he didn't deserve anything that happened. He was the Lamb of God and innocent personally. So from a personal standpoint, he didn't deserve what happened. But in a larger sense, because of our sins, he certainly did, because they were on his head. The Bible makes that clear in places, that the sin will be on your head or it will be on somebody else's head, depending on what's done. In this case, our sins were laid on his head. He had to answer for our sins in death so that we wouldn't have to die eternally. Now, when it came to running the money changers out of the temple, he didn't hesitate. Uh, He just ran them out. He didn't actually go to the courts of the world, did he? In that case, (laughs) he just took a whip and ran them off. So, what's he going to do here? I think he tells us in some scriptures what he is going to do. In other words, if somebody wrongs me personally, do I take them to court? No. What if they are trying to take away land that God gave the church? Equivalent in some respects to the temple itself. This is something that I believe, God gave us, it's his. And he's told us he's going to defend it. Now, he hasn't yet, but he tells us he's going to when the time is right. And I believe in that. I believe that he will. So, is it my job to get out a cat of nine tails or a gun or something and go run them off now? I don't think so. And they've already taken us to law. Then the question is, do we allow ourselves to be defrauded and them to take away some of what is ours, such as wells and roads and various things, some of the land? I think this needs some serious thought and some fasting and prayer is what I think this needs to see how what Paul is saying here applies to the current situation and what ought to be done or how we ought to react. Uh, Because what he's essentially saying here is that when matters come up within the church, you should be defrauded and allow yourself to be cheated before you would go to an unjust judge of the world. That's what he tells us to do, very clear. So how much do we fight, and how much do we put it in his hands and say, you take care of it? Wisdom in all these things, and knowing which Scripture applies where, is difficult. And that's why we need God's input, his guidance, and some fasting and prayer to know how to handle such issues when they do come. Because I can read one scripture one day and and it'll seem like, well, you ought to do this. I read this one today and it seems like, well, maybe I ought to do that. Because, And they're not contradictory, but it depends upon, to one degree or another, the circumstances. Christ could have gotten an injunction against those money changers and said, you know, according to law, they're not supposed to be in here. And I want you rulers to make this decision. Whether the rulers of Rome or the rulers of the Sanhedrin, one of the two. I want you to make the judgment. But he didn't do that. He made a judgment in that case because it was God's temple, and he took care of it. But we are not allowed to do that under the present circumstances because somebody would go to jail. Uh, and that God doesn't want us to go to jail for something like that, because it wouldn't solve it anyway. If you did it, you'd be in jail, and they'd get what they wanted anyhow. So what would that accomplish? Anyway, you do wrong and defraud, and that your own brethren, those who have been called by God. So then he goes on and explains it and talks about it some more, uh, that being what's on the table here. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he gives a category of a lot of different kinds of sin, but he says that right here in context, in conjunction with what he has just talked about, in saying that if they are defrauding one another, fraud is a sin. Fraud is doing something against your brother that is stealing something, or deceiving in some way, or lying to, and therefore breaking the Ten Commandments. So he goes on to say, it's not just this one thing I'm talking about. We're talking about the kingdom of God here. And what you are doing to each other within the church at Corinth will keep you out of the kingdom of God. That's literally what he's saying. So this is a serious matter. This lawsuit is a very serious matter that needs to be determined before God, His wisdom, His understanding, and perhaps even His intervention when the time comes. This is a life and death, eternal matter, is what He's saying. Don't take this lightly, Paul says. What you're doing is wrong, it's a fault. It leads to fraud. doesn't say which side necessarily, but what should you do when you're defrauded? Why not take it instead of fighting it in the law of the land? Leave it to God and judge it, if possible, among yourselves. And in that context he says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's just said what they were doing is unrighteous. It was wrong. It's a fault. So then he puts what they were doing in some pretty sleazy company here. Be not deceived about what I'm telling you here, he says. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And he's putting going to the world and getting judgments against each other in that context. It's pretty serious sins there. He didn't change the subject there, did he? He just went on to say that. He says, you do wrong, and you are defrauding when you do that. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the eternal Jesus, or Emmanuel, and by the Spirit of our God. So he says, You were doing these you were doing these, now you're having fights among yourselves, which is selfishness and the works of the flesh. Things are going on, and now you're going to the world instead of to God. You're going to Satan instead of to God for your answers. Now that's not that breaks the first commandment, doesn't it? To put God first in everything in our lives. So if we go to Satan's uh, authorities, and that's what they are, then we're going to him instead of to God. And he places that first commandment above all other commandments of putting God first and looking to him for our answers and answers among his people as opposed to those who are worshiping the devil whether they know it or not. So, he puts all these sins together with what they were doing. So, this is a pretty serious issue. You're you're washed. You're cleaned. Uh, You shouldn't be doing this. Then he says, All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So, we do have some options on some things. And even though something might be legal in some cases, it isn't an expedient or a wise or a good thing to do. Now, he's going to give us a really good example of that in just a few verses here in chapter 7 in regards to marriage and whether people should marry under circumstances where things are getting rough. We'll get to that in a bit. But I'll bring it up now because uh, there were some things there that he was saying might be legal but not expedient in chapter 7. So he's kind of introducing this up here. Uh, It might not be against the law to go to a judge of the world. I don't remember anything in the Old Testament that says thou shalt not do that. Anybody think of anything? That's the Old Testament New Testament. Uh, and it can't contradict with what he's saying here. That's one of those other scriptures you can read, and then you've got to make wise decisions. But I'm saying, is there a law? Romans 13 is not a law, but let's look at it just a moment. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. the powers that be are ordained of God. Wherefore, therefore, whosoever resists the power resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation, and rulers not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Uh, shall you be afraid of the powers? Uh, yeah, because they can put you in jail or kill you. Uh, so generally, Uh, God allows those things, and through through society, for the most part, it is general or in general that the laws and those who keep them and uh, so on are doing it for your good. Uh, I think it's for our good that they don't let us drive 100 miles an hour drunk. I think that would be uh, a bad thing for us. But, understand this, God says in Daniel that he puts over the nations, the basest of men. And he has ordained evil people to rule on the earth. Do we understand that? Satan is the present evil ruler of this world. Ordained of God to do so. God put Satan in charge down here for a short time. And then he is going to be removed from that. So not only does he put, God put evil men over the nations, he's put an evil being, an evil demon, Satan, over the earth. Now, do you follow Satan's laws? No, you follow God's laws. We are to obey God rather than men. If there's any conflict ever, you obey God rather than men. You always put that ahead of what men say. So he's saying in general here, they have rules, they have ordinances, you keep them. But at the same time, uh, you're not supposed to break God's laws. goes on down in verse 9 and starts naming them. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Taking them to court is not loving them uh, in the way that he means here. And that we should wake up. So he says, yeah, generally obey the rules that the mankind puts out there. But if there's any conflict with God, then you do it God's way. <coughs> so, he's telling him in 1 Corinthians 6, To do it God's way. Put God's judgment and his people ahead of the rulers of this world (coughs) who will make unjust judgments. So he's not telling us in Romans 13 that we're to put uh, the courts or the laws of this world ahead of God. We're not. That's very clear. We obey God rather than man. If there's any question you do God's way. And he's saying there in 1 Corinthians 6 that going to court against each other is not God's way. That it's a fault, that it's wrong. (coughs) Going on in verse 13, and he says, Food for the belly, and the belly for food. But God shall destroy both it and them. So he says, you can eat certain foods. Other people won't. He's he's talked about vegetarianism in places. Some eat meat, some don't eat meat. Uh, So you can have discrepancies in food. (coughs) But ultimately, God judges it all. And we won't need food anymore. Then he says, (coughs) now the body (coughs) is not for fornication but for the eternal, and the eternal for the body. Our bodies are dedicated to God, not for fornication with others. And God has both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up uh, us up by his own power. What he's pointing out there, then, is that God is in charge overall, and food will at some time not matter. And the only thing that will matter is whether you get resurrected. Well, God can bring us up. So he says, look to God first. Look to God's people first. Don't look to the world and the rulers of this world. Yeah, First Corinthians 13, I mean Romans 13, he says, stay in line with them as best you can. But if there's a difference, put God first. And he's clearly showing there's a difference in 1 Corinthians 6. And we have to put God and his judgment and the judgment of his people ahead of the world. So, Satan going to resurrect you? Are the judges of this world, are the rulers of this world going to resurrect you? No, nope, Only God. So we put him first. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. See, we are pledged to God. We are pledged to Christ to become his bride. Now, if we go out and fornicate, then we are taking that which is holy in God's eyes, that which is uh, to become the bride of Christ, and sharing it with others. Now, he got all over ancient Israel about that, didn't he? and eventually divorced Israel because of that. So we're not to do that. What? Now, know you not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body, for two, says he, shall be one flesh. So there is a connection made there that God says is an illegal connection. It should not be done. We belong to Christ. And if we have done those things, then we have to repent of them and not do them anymore. So, this is in the same context what he's been talking before. He's using this example to show that joining together with the world in a a relationship of judges and courts is separating us from God in the same way that going to a harlot separates us from God and joins us to the harlot. Same thing. Anything we do that breaks the closeness and the relationship with God is in the same category. So he takes sex sins here, which is probably... In some respects, the worst thing as far as people judge it, you know, uh, lying, ah, he does it, she does it, uh, it happens. Adultery or fornication, oh my, that's a no-no and you become the town whore uh, kind of a thing. Because in the eyes of men, some sins are worse than others, okay, So he takes one of those that is worst in the value of men and uses it here to explain what he's talking about to them when they were going to the minions of the world and Satan instead of to God and each other to solve this. He says it's the same thing because you're being separated from God by what you're doing. He that is joined to the Eternal is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. And he uses that example there because that is something that destroys your personal relationship with God more so than just a particular sin with, uh, let's say, a lie or something between two people. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? Which you have of God, and you are not your own. God's dwelling in us, and if we give ourselves in fornication to other human beings, we are defiling that relationship with God. Now, in the Old Testament, it wasn't just, it wasn't physical fornication or adultery that Israel was committing with the other nations. It was alliances between Israel and their governments. And God called that adultery. Instead of looking to him to lead them and be their king, their ruler, their judge, they went to others. Instead of worshiping him with their heart, they doted upon the Assyrians. And there may have been physical adultery and fornication, but it was the spiritual adultery and fornication that's what really led to the divorce. Breaking The covenant that they had made with him in any way, politically, religiously, uh, physically, was wrong. And the same is true for us. We have to keep all the elements of the covenant that we made with God at baptism. For you are bought with a price, Christ's blood being that price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The physical and the spiritual, uh, we both have to honor God in and glorify God in. So, fornication politically with the world, court-wise with the world, whatever with the world, and physical, actual, sexual uh, fornication and adultery are all included here in the same package in this one chapter. Now we have time to get into chapter 7. Another issue that they had, uh, he says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now it isn't totally clear here uh, who had asked, well, it's clear that they had asked a question that they had written to him. So they did look to him for an answer here instead of going to the world in this particular case. Uh, I don't think Paul would have said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, Maybe some of these people in this uh, congregation, uh, which was a very loose congregation sexually to start with, had decided, well, it's better just not to touch. Just stay away. I mean, that, that thought had come up earlier with Christ where they says, well, if you can't just put your wife away and get rid of her if you don't like her, maybe you shouldn't marry at all. Because they told Christ in that case, maybe it's just better to stay away from them. Don't even touch one if you can't put her away. Don't ever get married in the first place. And he says, well... Some can contain and some can't. So well, you're on your own. So somebody here had said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I, I doubt it was Paul. Uh, he may have been uh, reminding them what they had written to him when he said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This is what, this is what you wrote to me. So then he's going to answer what they wrote. So he says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every man, woman have her own husband. Now, he is going to clarify this a little later on when he talks about the present distress, and he felt that the end of the age was upon them, and therefore these were things to consider at the end of the age when there is going to be great pressure and great stress and so on. So, he says, has an opening statement. Let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband in order to avoid fornication. So, he's not saying you shouldn't touch. He's saying you should avoid fornication by getting married. Let the husband render to the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband... That they are to give to each other in a physical relationship. That's what this is talking about. The wife has not power of her own body, but the husband. It's there for him to use as he needs and wants. Uh, But the husband, and likewise also the husband has not power of his own body, but the wife for her to use as she wants and desires. So they were not to withhold sex. That's what a lot of people in marriages do, you know. Uh, They have an argument. Okay, none for you. You're sleeping on the couch or whatever. Uh, So they use it as a weapon. And Paul says it's not to be used as a weapon, that you're supposed to make yourself available for the wants and needs of your husband or your wife. Either way, not a weapon. If you're going to fight, you don't use that that is totally unfair and it is against God's way it is against God's law now maybe out of the mood because of a fight's one thing but uh, but you don't use it and say uh, you're not having that until you do this <laughs> you know uh, it's not a bargaining chip because you're married and you don't have control over your body your mate does it's theirs for their use, uh, well, I, within reason and norms, naturally. There's a point where you can't produce beyond a certain point. So, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about withholding. <clears throat> so, he says, defraud you not one the other. So, he brings up fraud here again. Uh, if you misuse sexuality and the relationship that husband and wife should enjoy, that's fraud. Uh, Because you, when you were married, were told that you would make yourselves available to each other. And if you don't, that is fraud. Except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So, the sexual relationship is there to draw man and woman close together in a marriage. And they are not to withhold that, except telling the other, uh, I need to fast, I need some time to pray, and uh, fasting and sex don't go together. Uh, We should... Suspend for a day or two or three or whatever the fasting period is. And then come back together that Satan not tempt you. Because uh, temptations can come along. That which you're not getting at home, you might want to get somewhere else. So he says, don't let Satan tempt you to sin because you're withholding from each other. Only for a legitimate reason like fasting and prayer. And then come back together. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. Uh, So what he's going to say now, he says, I'm speaking this with the permission of Christ, but it's not a commandment per se. Okay? But it is with God's permission. Because people have argued with what he talks about down here after this and says, well, it's not a command of God. Well, maybe not. And Paul acknowledged that. But he said, whether it's a command or not, I have permission from God to say it. Therefore, it's important. God gave his okay on it. I'm going to say it. And then God put it in the Bible. So don't say, well, it's not a commandment, and dismiss what Paul has to say here. It's important. He says, for I would that all men were even as I myself. He was single, and he's he's leading up to something here. But he says, I would prefer if everybody could be like I am at this point with what they were going into, or he thought they were. But every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows It is good for them if they abide even as I. Uh, Single would be better, he says, under the present circumstances that it appears we're going into. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Uh, He says it would be better if you remain single under the circumstances that are coming than to marry. On the other hand, if it would lead to fornication or adultery, it's better to marry than to burn up with passion and so on and be able to, unable to handle that. So he says that isn't the best way, but he says if you can't handle it, then uh, go ahead. And to the married I command, yet not I, but the eternal. Now he's, this is law. Here's a command. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So he says, Here's the command of God. You were you married and you're supposed to stay married until death does you part. That's what is the ideal from God. And that is what... Christ reiterates in Matthew 19 that is a marriage state and we marry until death does us part, right? Now he's going to give an extenuating circumstance here but he says that's the norm and that's what God normally expects that's what you should live up to <coughs> but if you can't stand it in other words, you can live separate but don't remarry <coughs> Or be reconciled later on if you can sell, if you can work things out. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. So here he's saying, here's, here's where my personal opinion comes in. But God gave me permission to speak it and put it in the, in the Scripture. Because it actually goes against, technically, the command of being married till death does you part. And he'll explain why. An exception can be made. He says, generally, there's not an exception, but I'm going to give you one. It isn't something that God spoke. It's not something He commanded. But it's something here under the present circumstances that we are living with that God has given me permission to do, or to say, or to write. Okay? And the woman which has, verse 13, and husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Now, he tells us a little later on not to marry outside God's congregation. We all know that. This is talking about someone who is already married and... uh, has a mate that doesn't believe and if they or if, if that mate is pleased and well with you you are not to leave them or divorce them because God called you and God didn't call the mate he'll explain here in just a moment if they be pleased and well with them don't leave verse 14 for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. In other words, because of one member's adherence to God, uh, if they have a mate, male or female, that is not a believer, God protects, blesses, sanctifies, or sets aside for protection and help their children, because of the belief of the one. Now, if you're both unbelievers, God doesn't sanctify your kids at all. They're just time and chance. But if there's one believer in the couple, then God sets aside or sanctifies or protects those children because of the believer. So he's giving instruction here to people Who are in the church whose mate has not been called. Verse 15: But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. Well, you probably couldn't stop them in the first place if they're determined to depart. But he's saying here: if they decide they don't want to live with you, let them depart. And here's the part that was uh, given. he was per, given permission to make an exception here. A brother or a sister, either way, is not under bondage to such cases. What is bondage? Bondage means bound. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So, if you have, let's say, a woman in the church who has an unbelieving husband, and he won't allow her to serve God in peace, but is always badgering her and going against her and trying to get her to do things that are ungodly, keep Christmas, uh, eat pork, you name it, and will not let her in peace obey God, then they can separate and she's not bound to him till death. Why would God make an exception here? Because only God can do the calling. He's the only one. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father drawing. So, God could have chosen to call both, as he sometimes has. At times, he only calls one, and he doesn't call the other. Well, that's on him, Right? It's not on the believer who has an unbelieving mate. Now, if you go marry somebody outside the church, that's on you. It isn't on God, because He told you not to do that. But if He calls one and not the other, that's on Him. So if He calls a man, doesn't call the wife, and she gives him trouble all the time over his belief in God and trying to serve God, it says he can leave her. And he is not bound to her under those circumstances. Because it is God who made that division. It is God who made that separation of calling one and not the other. So that's why God gave Paul permission to say this, is because this hadn't been faced before. This was a new development in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you could put your wife away for any reason. Didn't like the way she combed her hair this morning. Didn't matter. You could put her away. Exodus 24. Very clear. Now, in the New Testament, Christ said in Matthew 19, Nuh uh, till death do you part. Well, let's go back there. I, don't, I can't quite quote it. Matthew 19. Um, The Pharisees came tempting Christ in verse 3. Is it lawful for man to put away his wife for any and every reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh, and there are no more two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man... Or let not man put asunder. And then he said, Well, why did Moses allow them to divorce? And he told them, Because of the hardness of their hearts. But if you put your wife away, Except it be for fornication or adultery or sex sins, Is what that is. It's not uh, premarital sex. And shall marry another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her which is put away does commit adultery. Herbert Armstrong had trouble with that. And he says that, that adultery was not grounds for divorce. That only premarital fornication that was not told ahead of the marriage was, would allow that. You defrauded, in other words, said you're a virgin and you weren't. But there's an example in Revelation where Jezebel there was a married woman. And she committed fornication, uh, clearly. And uh, so, so any a sex sin, not just premarital fornication, but a sex sin, including adultery, is grounds for divorce. That's what that's what got, uh, Christ used with Israel, was it not? They were already married, already had the marriage covenant. So when he said she went whoring after other nations, that was adultery, not fornication as we define it today in English. It was sex sins, or he attributed it as sex sins, whether they were physically doing it or politically doing it doesn't matter. But it was concourse or intercourse with other nations that was illegal based on their covenant with him. So it was for adultery that Christ divorced Israel. And here, the same thing is true. And then his disciples said, this is what I was referring to, well, maybe it's just good not to marry if we can't just put them away if we want to. He says, well, some are eunuchs of men and some eunuchs for the kingdom, and if you want to live that way, you can live that way. But the law is the law. So that's what the law was as Christ stated it. Now here, he gives Paul permission to make an exception if God has only called one mate into the church. And if they can't get along and live in peace, then they can separate and they are not bound together as married anymore. They're both free and free to marry. Now that was the only thing that Paul was loosening up here and not other things. Uh, When Herbert Armstrong finally saw that this was the case and what the Scripture is actually saying and accepted this in the church, then people forgot that this was an exception made only if you had an unbelieving mate who would not let you live in peace and serve God. And they began to do it according to the way of Moses, the hardness of their hearts, for any and every reason. And there are all kinds of reasons then people divorced, but those were illegal. Once this doctrine was changed, this is a very narrowly defined exception. Between, because there were all kinds of people who were both in the church, who got married as a result of this, cha- uh, got divorced as a result of this change, and it didn't apply to them at all. But they used it as an excuse, so that wasn't right. This is a very narrowly defined uh, exception that he makes. Live in peace before God because your relationship with God and your marriage to Christ supersedes the marriage to a human being who might, by persecuting you, keep you out of the kingdom of God if you give in to what they want. So he's saying put the marriage with Christ ahead of the physical marriage if it comes down to a choice of one or the other. Are you going to obey God and be in his kingdom? Or are you going to let a mate pull you away from God and miss the kingdom of God? That's the question. And even with, in a marriage where you have two believers, you might separate because your mate is pulling you away from God in the church. But you can't remarry under those circumstances because it wasn't an unbeliever. It was someone you were having trouble getting along with who's trying to pull you away from serving God. And that happens between believing mates. He's already said up there, according to the law, you can separate. Hopefully you can repent and reconcile and get back together, but you're not free to marry somebody else just because two members or having trouble and one may be trying to pull the other away maybe and may leave the church and if they do you don't have to live with them but you can't remarry because you're bound until death <clears throat> that's the law this is an exception where god has called one and not the other verse 16 <clears throat> for what know you, O wife, whether you shall save your husband? Or how know you, O man, whether you shall save your wife? But as God has distributed to every man, as the Eternal has called everyone, so let him walk. Uh, he'll go on to explain that some more, and we're out of time for today, so I'll stop right right there. But he continues this uh, dissertation about marriage, later in the chapter.